this is the miracle of Christianity. It's not the man. It's the message. It's the gospel. It's our Savior. And if to some degree I present to men and women the beauties and the blessedness of Christ, there ought to be a warming of the heart, not weariness. And we need to take this to heart that we do not lose our cutting edge because of weariness. Now, I get to a few particular things, and these come home pretty close. Welcome again to Let the Bible Speak, and today we go straight to our message on When Life Loses, it's cutting edge. Second Kings chapter 6. This is the woodman who loses the head of his axe. And he says, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. Well, is not everything borrowed in the Christian life? None uh, of our strength is our own, nor are our talents our own. Everything is borrowed. And when we lose it, we're in trouble. Stay tuned as we let the Bible speak from the pulpit of our church. It used to be that we didn't have anything to be proud about. But maybe we get to the place in our own Christian walk or Christian family or Christian church, and we think we have got something to boast about. Pride certainly can be an issue. Have we allowed the canker of pride to spoil us? Too proud to pray in a public prayer meeting? Too proud to confess sin? amongst brothers and sisters, too proud to bear one another's burdens because we won't open up and admit that we need help, that's when pride destroys the very function of the church. The other coming under the general heading is growing weary. Have we grown weary? Some of us have been in the battle a long time. And one of the things that makes us weary is when we see our seniors, those who were 20, 30 years ahead of us in the battle, and they're no longer in the battle. The Lord maybe has called them home to glory, or they've retired and they're not all that active in the ministry. And so we are called on to pick up the work and press on in the battle. And we can become weary of these things. I grew up in a home where there were two words always banned. Ewan's here tonight, and he might testify. He also grew up in a home where those two words were banned. One was the word tired, and the other was the word bored. Have I ever said to my dad, I'm bored? That was a bad day, because he made sure he got me something to do that I wouldn't be bored. And I never would dare say, I'm tired. That was like being the laziest lout you could imagine in our family. To this day, I must say, it can irk me when people tell me they are tired or they are bored. Those things ought not to be in Christian work. There is too much to do. The battle is too hot. The work is too demanding. And we cannot allow 
without good reason and circumstances, to have this attitude that we become weary. Because then the, the ranks thin out. You and at Christmas time or so rec recommended a book to me. It's called 1776, and it is all about the uh, Confederation in the United States and how they stake their claim, the revolution against the British, and so on. And when General Washington lost a number of battles, firstly at Bunker Hill, just outside Boston, and later the center of the city of Boston, although they put up a big bastion and they put up their cannons, but uh, the English general, how he decided just to, to move out all his ships. And then when they went down to New York, General Howe, the British general, again outwitted General Washington. And after months of marching and weary weather and disease, waiting and waiting, and then arriving 200 English ships, arriving at New York, ready to take the city. And they did. And all they could do was retreat. Well, the men in the military, and they had just come from the farms. They had come from the pioneering of, of those states in America at that time. They just refused to sign up again. And at one point, General Washington's army had reached such a critical stage, he had no men to fight. And I've equated that to the church. We have lost battles. We have lost opportunities. We have seen the, the, the immoral agenda of wicked men advance in our nation. We have seen our politicians undo what our forefathers have given their blood to defend and to deliver to us. We have seen within churches damage done by foolish Christians, whether they're wheat or tares, we don't know. But today the church is in a state where it becomes wearisome. That's why Paul Put in Galatians 6, be not weary in well-doing. How we need that. And the promises we shall reap if we faint not. Now, I put myself in your shoes. I climb out of the pulpit and I take my seat in the pew. And sometimes I wonder, how do you possibly come to hear me preach Sunday after Sunday, week after week? How do you do it? How do you not become weary? But this is the miracle of Christianity. It's not the man. It's the message. It's the gospel. It's our Savior. And if to some degree I present to men and women the beauties and the blessedness of Christ, there ought to be a warming of the heart, not weariness. And we need to take this to heart that we do not lose our cutting edge because of weariness. Now, I get to a few particular things, and these come home pretty close. Some of them, again, are, are, are commonly preached on and, and exhortations about them. And, of course, one of them, when we stop praying. And we can lose the ax, the cutting edge of our Christian life, in stop 
praying. Now, usually people don't totally stop praying, but they stop praying with power and passion, and they end up going into a mode of rote praying or just duty praying. And I wonder, have you, and I have honestly gotten on my knees and asked God to deliver me from anything that would stop the blessing. Have you resorted to just rote praying? There's an emptiness to it. And perhaps you can point to the period in time when you switched from real, Holy Ghost, passionate, red-hot praying to just doing your duty. The next one, of course, reading our Bibles. And again, most Christians don't totally stop reading their Bibles. They do pay some attention to it. But when's the last time when you really got into the Word? When you really got a verse and a verse got a hold of you? People say we can't preach a text until it masters us. Now, my task as a preacher is to master the text. If I don't understand the text, if I don't get to the root of the meaning of the text— I can't preach it. But the text must master us. It must captivate our minds and really take hold of our thinking. Another one is when we have stopped witnessing. Maybe you can trace the loss of spiritual power in your own life to the time when you used to speak freely about the Lord— but somehow you stopped, and you haven't been using and speaking well of the blessing of God in your own soul. You've been silent. Let me ask you, when is the last time you gave your testimony to someone? I really mean you told them the whole story of how you became a Christian. Now, we try to slip in a word once in a while. Um, you might say, well, I'm a Christian, and leave it at that. But when's the last time that you really took an opportunity, and God gives opportunities, and you remained silent? Do you understand how that grieves the Holy Spirit? Do you understand the offense that causes to the one who dwells within you when he gives you that opportunity and you remain silent? Or you gave the bare minimum answer? and did not lay hold upon that opportunity? Is there not a connection between the blessing of God and our willing to use that blessing for God's glory and honor? Jesus said, they that confess me before men, he confesses before his Father, which is in heaven. And that's not just when we get to heaven, but I tell you, when you give your testimony and you witness to some soul about Christ, the next time you get on your knees to pray— there will be a definite correlation between the boldness by which you spoke and the blessedness in the place of prayer. Oh, we can lose the cutting edge. We need a hallelujah attitude again. We need not just an apologetic attitude, but a hallelujah attitude. I'm a Christian and unashamed of it. And there comes the blessing. One more area. Sorry, there's two. I have to be honest here. There's two. When we stop caring, this happens when we are overwhelmed. 
when we're bombarded with the problems of this world, church, families, when the phone never stops ringing, when the email inbox never stops filling up, and we just get to the point where we're overwhelmed, and the next issue, you throw up your hands and you say, I, I can't handle it. I don't care. And when the devil gets to you to that point, you're defeated, and you have to cry out, alas. Now, I had a science teacher in secondary school. I can see him yet in his white coat with his little uh, glass jars. And he had this habit of always using the word alas, alas. And it's one of those nebulous words that you could pour any meaning into. But in this very context, it means, in fact, the dictionary meaning is to be wretched and weary, wretched and weary. This young prophet at this moment came to an end of himself. He could do no more. Any physical attempt to cut wood wouldn't work. Alas, for it was borrowed. And we're back to the reality. We can't get this back ourselves because it's borrowed. We are all debtors, debtors to grace, debtors to God, and we need to recognize that. The fifth one, and I'll be very quick here, and that is confessing sin. When we stop confessing sin, when there is an Achan-like problem in our lives or our church, and we're not willing to confess it. It used to be that you were very sensitive about sin. It used to be that you would have trembled at putting your hand to something, doing something, saying something, lest it grieve the Lord. But tonight, your heart is somewhat hardened to that, and you do not confess sin as you once did. When you stop confessing sin, well, you stop the flow of grace to your soul. It's like a blockage in the pipe system. The blessing cannot flow. Now, I've just moved on my notes, and what have I found here? Another reason. When I said one, there should have been three. When we stop relying on the Lord, when we stop relying on the Lord, in reading Chronicles, I learned about King Asa, and during the early part of his kingly reign, there came an army from Ethiopia, an army of a million men. That's right, one with six zeros behind it. And they had chariots and weaponry that Israel did not have. What did Asa do? He cried to the Lord. And it doesn't give you many details of how God defeated the Ethiopians, but they were turned, and Israel went after them to gain the spoil. A short time later, when Israel, that's the wicked apostate northern kingdom, arose against Asa, king of Judah, there were 500,000 of an army, half that many. What did Asa do? He sent wealth to King Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, to turn his army against Israel. He bought a mercenary army 
to defeat his enemy. And they did, but God was not pleased. The end of the story is that Asa's heart grew hardened, and he was diseased in his feet to the day he died. He is nicknamed the diseased king because he didn't rely on the Lord. God wants his people to rely on him. Are you doing that tonight? Now, I come back to my own heart, and I can, I can honestly say when I looked at this on, on, on uh, Friday, I, can, I was on my knees, and I said, Lord, am I relying on you? Is this what has gone wrong? I confess it. I, I plead mercy and forgiveness. Lord, I don't want to conduct a gospel ministry in the flesh. I don't want to trust in my own strength. I don't want to be a man who's doing something in human power. Lord, I don't want to be like Asa. I, I, I want to rely on you, Lord. And something of that was burned into my heart. And now we need to pray, Lord, give us, give us the ax back. Give us the cutting edge back. And that brings us now to the triumphant restoration. We're told here in verse 6, and the iron did swim. Now, to cut to the chase, you'll notice that Elisha put a, he cut down a stick, put it in the water, and the axe head rose to the top level of the water, swimming. And we don't agree with the modernists that he hooked it with a stick. But what does that stick mean? Do I have an interpretive mandate to take you to Calvary, that that stick which worked the miracle upon that axe head to bring the cutting edge and the power back into that young prophet's ministry or service, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. There is no cue to tell me that this is Calvary. But what I do know from all that we glean from the Bible what we call the analogy of faith, that the cross is the place you go when you lose your blessing and you need it back. We go to the cross. We go to Christ and the suffering, victorious Redeemer at the cross. Now, what did the young prophet do? And we must not miss this. Therefore, verse 7, said he, take it up to thee, and he put out his hand and took it. That's when my tears turned to joy. Lord, I'm going to take the blessing again. I don't know what you gave me in the past. I don't know what we had in the past. But Lord, I'm going to take it again. And I'm going to plead verses like Ephesians 5, 18, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Oh, Lord, I take it. I take it. God has not called us to a performance-based ministry. He has not called us to slug it out in our own strength, in our own ability. The Lord promises power. And when he rose from the dead, he said to his disciples, tarry at Jerusalem until ye be endued with power. And that led them to Pentecost, to the prayer meeting, and the descending of the Holy Spirit. But that commission that advice stands tonight, and I must take it. I must tarry at Jerusalem until we be endued with power. 
I'm not going to run away. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to try something humanly faddish or new. I'm going to wait on the Holy Spirit to fall. And brothers and sisters, this is the only hope of the Christian church in Canada. It's the only hope of this congregation here is the Holy Ghost to fall upon each and every one of us. When we were converted, we got all of the Holy Spirit. I do not believe in this incremental second blessing notion that you get the Holy Spirit at conversion, then there's a second experience, and then you get the Holy Spirit to a greater degree. But I believe that when we are born again of the Spirit, we get all of the Holy Spirit. And then we grow as Christians, and it may take time for the Holy Spirit to get all of us. That's the sanctifying process. There are things that we need to surrender. There are things that we need to give up. There are things that we need to let go of that we might enjoy the fullness of the Spirit. And so let us be a surrendered people. Open your heart tonight and he will work it in your heart. Pray for power. Pray for the Holy Spirit to come. Pray for me. I beg the prayers of my congregation. If you come on Wednesday night, you will know that. I beg the prayers of my people. If you don't pray for me, who else is there in this world that will? Maybe Christian parents, Maybe some faithful souls that mention this church name in their church prayer meetings around the world. But if we don't pray as a church, we're not going to get the cutting edge. This message began with some very difficult things, but I think it ends with great blessing. And I'm not discouraged. This gives me great hope that the Lord is not done with us. And that young prophet's service was not over. I can see him reshafting the axe. If you go to a hardware store and buy an axe, you'll see that it's very cleverly done. Very cleverly done. There's little wedges you put in and all kinds of things to get that axe well fixed. I think many of those techniques were well known in those days. We haven't moved all that far, haven't advanced all that far in the world of axe heads and the shafting of them. This was an iron. Did you notice the word iron, by the way? It was an iron axe head. They did metal work. Wood doesn't cut wood, but iron does. Steel would be better. Carbon tipped would be even better. But I can see that young prophet getting his axe head on again and he gets back to the work. This is not a recipe for shortcuts. And God never tells us that his work will be easy. He never tells us it's going to be fast-paced. But we get back into the work, and that's the blessing. And to see that seminary built and the work performed, that would have been the blessing.
You're listening to Let the Bible Speak, and we come to another moment in Mark, that is in Mark's Gospel. And we're looking at a number of seeming strange things. We've had already the seeming strange name of Levi for Matthew, a seeming strange call where the Lord said to a tax collector, follow me. And now we have a seeming sinful call where the Lord Jesus, we are told, sat in a publican's house with many publicans and sinners where they sat together. In the minds of scribes and Pharisees, this was unthinkable. Jesus was in the house of sin. He sat with sinners. He was together with them. This begged the question, how is it? They could not fathom it. To Pharisees, godliness was external. It was to keep the rules of keeping your distance from any appearance of evil. And certainly no one should seem to encourage sinners in their sinful lifestyle. The large house would have been the fruits of corrupt gain. The friends would have had no change of heart. The conversation would hardly have been on spiritual things. The Lord ate and drank what they drank. The question is, who was following whom? Was Matthew following Jesus, or was Jesus following Matthew? That is the question. All we can say is that Matthew had shown himself to be Jesus' disciple. It was a seeming sinful call to Matthew, but it wasn't. And this was a seeming place of sinful fellowship. But again, it wasn't. And then also we have a seeming stinging reply to criticism. In verse 17, Jesus heard it. He said unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He addressed those who felt that they had no need. They are the people who are most lost, for the Lord has no ministry to them but to break their hearts. Christ's ministry is to sinners. They are called to repentance. The bottom line is that as long as we call sinners to repentance and they remain in our company, we are not sinning but ministering. That applies to homes, family, and friends. It applies also to the church. We invite sinners to come and participate in the life of the church, but we call them to repentance. At every opportunity, we show them that repentance is their only hope. And so, for these, we pray. And we must never despair of the conversion of the worst of sinners. If Levi or Matthew, the tax collector, can be converted and if Pharisees can be converted, well, there's none that we should not be praying for. So do not cease to minister to sinners and do not cease to pray for them. Pray for mercy for their souls. And that is our moment in Mark. 
You are listening to Let the Bible Speak, the radio broadcast of the Free Presbyterian Church in Canada. This is Pastor Ian Golliher. If you missed part of today's program or would like to hear it again, you can find it archived by program date on our website. Just go to www.ltbs.ca, CA for Canada. There you can read my blog, find my Bible study notes, audio and video sermons, as well as helpful articles. Or you can go to our podcast on iTunes. We're on the air Sundays at 9.30 a.m. for our full church broadcast and Monday to Friday, 5 a.m. and 5 p.m. on this station to bring you the gospel from our free Presbyterian church here in Cloverdale. We also invite you to our church services on Sundays, 10.30 and 6 p.m. Through our website, you can listen and view to our online services at 10.30 and 6 p.m. Make it your Sunday worship. Click on the Live Now button on the homepage of our website. Or if you would like to talk with me one-on-one as a pastor, please give me a call. The phone number is 604-897-2040. The mailing address is 187 9058 Avenue, Surrey, BC, V3S1M6. We're located just two blocks north of Number 10 Highway on 188th Street. Our website again is ltbs.ca. You can join us Monday to Friday, 5 a.m., 5 p.m., here on this station as we let the Bible speak. Mm-hmm.